again everyone we are back again in iiba summit day 2 with another yet another interesting workshop we apologize for the delay you but we make sure that this is worth the wait we thank our sponsors insulpro and gomic heating to believe in our vision the venue is designed by manticore designs now there will be a workshop on nature inspired design thinking taken by architect chetan shiva prasad chetan shiva prasad is principal designer at kham design and humpy design center for design the workshop is on a detailed understanding of why to study nature what is nature uh, what is nature inspired design and how to learn from nature and its implementation we welcome you sir thank you thank you roda am i live yes 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 sir okay yeah good evening everyone sorry about the delay in starting the session there was some technical glitch and we had to resolve that so anyways uh, welcome to this journey which we are going into in terms of looking at how do we look at nature uh, for inspiration and uh, what what do we really understand by this concept called nature inspired design thinking and uh, it is some uh, some kind of a thought which we need to go into where uh uh i've been working on nature inspired design thinking uh for the last 15 plus years uh working with various students on uh really addressing inspirations from nature uh but i i'll also talk to you about uh, my sharing of what is design thinking and uh, uh what is nature inspired design thinking um in brief design thinking is a process which was started by the stanford university of design which said that any problem which needs to be solved in any field uh needs to be addressed in a particular format and uh, they took inspirations from the way designers work on uh, on solving their issues on the kind of ideation on the kind of opening up uh, venues and working on it so um Stanford literally look at the way designers solve problems and took it forward and said that let's create a process of uh, problem solving and uh, create a very unique uh, program called design thinking and has a school on design thinking uh, uh, for quite some time so uh, just a small brief uh, i'm architect chetan shiva prasad um, i have an architectural firm called come design and uh, where we work on issues of uh, sustainability we work on various other issues of construction systems and we've been practicing for the last 23 years and have a office in bangalore and hampi and i also run an institute called the hampi center for design which is a hub for design dialogue where we conduct a lot of workshops related to design related to uh, problem solving related to tensegrity and many more such activities we've collaborated with a lot of people to work on this uh, so been a hardcore uh, environmentalist in the sense that i would like to see how i can lead light on planet earth i've also been a travel freak traveling across the country to all literally all states of uh, india and also to quite a few uh, places across the globe uh, exploring architectural languages exploring culture and things of like that and for the last few years have also been uh, putting ourselves as a design thinker in the in the format of what stanford university talks about uh, 
uh, where uh, we've been working with people from various genres, not just architects, not just designers, but people from the finance background, people from the management background, people from uh, um, the education background, and trying to see how we can address our day-to-day -day problems and try and solve it through, uh, through design thinking. And uh, in this journey, we've, we've kind of uh, looked at inspirations like uh, Jean Viewers, where uh, uh, through her biomimicry institution and the Stanford University's uh, School of Design thought, we've kind of come together a very, uh, very unique, very interesting program, which is a seven step process of design thinking, which I'll be sharing with all of you today. I've also been teaching in various schools of architecture and uh, been, uh, you know, been a visiting faculty across the country. I've taken sessions at uh, SPA Delhi, SPA Vijayawada, uh, and across Bangalore, Tumkur, uh, and many more such places, uh, Kerala, and many more such places. So uh, this is a little brief about me, and especially in terms of design thinking, We've had close to around 1,200 to 1,300 people who have been part of the design thinking process where, with whom we have done workshops and where we've explored this kind of an idea with them. So in brief, what is design thinking? Design thinking is an iterative, which means that it is not a, a step one, step two, step three process, but something which is cyclical, an iterative process where you can jump from one point to another point in which we seek to understand the user uh, because design thinking is purely uh, anthropocentric way of looking at design at problem solving, which means that the human beings become core of the, uh, of the challenge. So we need to understand what the human being wants to address, what is his problems, uh, then question the assumptions which comes with the problem and how do you define a problem? So there's a process called a problem definition. Uh, so you first empathize on the user, which is what we talk about understanding the user. We change certain assumptions and redefine the problem statement, which is step two according to the, uh, if I'm looking at a five-step process. And then ideate on uh, various uh, creative or a crazy set of ideas, which looks at very unique ways of uh, looking at the same problem. So there's, this is generally done through a series of design sprints called, uh, you know, where we do a lot of uh, brainstorming activities on, on uh, ideation part. And then we kind of prototype and then test the prototype. So where, uh, where this, you know, if you find that the prototype has certain challenges, you can go back to the empathize position and restart the whole activity or you can go back to redefining the problem statement. That's what we mean by the iterative process of design thinking. But uh, when I was looking at this, uh, we said that there's some challenge which you are missing out on design thinking processes. And that's where we said, uh, uh, let's look at nature. Let us kind of readdress in terms of how nature um, is uh, solving problems. And uh, why should we look at nature is the, is the next question which came. Because when you know the why of any, anything, when you know the why of anything, then the, then the way you address that why becomes very, very clear, right? So uh, I will ask you a simple question as to uh, when did you think human beings came on earth in a 
12-hour clock of Earth's evolution, which meant that Earth has evolved for the last 4 billion years, approximately 4 billion years. And if Earth started evolving like a ball of mass at 00 hour, and it has taken us 12 hours to come where we are today, where do you, when do you think human beings came on planet Earth? You'll be surprised if I say that we have come into planet Earth in the last three seconds, in the last three seconds of Earth's evolution, which means that we are only a blip of uh, movement in Earth's evolution. That means that Earth has kind of, I mean, just imagine our recorded history um, has been around 50,000 years and what we see as civilized history of what we see as um, what communities and things like that has been hardly five to 10,000 years. And uh, this is, and if I'm looking at dinosaurs, they literally lived on planet Earth for close to around 200 plus uh, million years, 200 million years. So we are only a blip in Earth's evolution. And Earth or nature, if I can call, if I can substitute the word Earth with nature, I would say Earth or nature has evolved, has solved problem for the last, four billion years, which we are trying to look at in the last, um, let's say uh, from the time, if I, if I talk about industrial revolution or even our IT revolution, which is happening right now, uh, say it could be for the past maximum 100 years, or 100, 200 years, right? We've been looking at problem solving um, in a very unique way in the last 200 years, but nature has been solving it for the last few billion years. Um, humongous amount of information in, in the nature's library. So it is imperative that we start tapping into this uh, powerhouse of knowledge from nature. Because when, uh, when you look at nature, nature kind of inspires you in, in such a way that uh, you, know, you see a butterfly and you see uh, how a uh, butterfly works from being a caterpillar to building its own cocoon, growing inside it, and then burst open, comes out, and becomes a butterfly. So just imagine the amount of complexity that butterfly itself has as a small organism. Or just look at a small mosquito and try and understand how this mosquito would have built all those mechanisms uh, uh, to just draw blood. Or, and how it would how it would uh, how it would have been created per se so kind of mutations it would have gone through it goes back to our biological uh, learning no? which says what is theory of evolution theory of evolution is basically um, um, survival of the fittest by charles darwin what he says is uh, theory of evolution is survival of the fittest by natural selection i think the last three words are very critically important for us to understand that, which means that nature has been looking at surviving only the fittest because of their natural selection. It does not mean that uh, whoever is stronger have been able to survive, but whoever has been stronger in this given situation and how they have overpowered that situation has allowed them to survive further. Say, I'll just give you an example of our, ourselves itself. We are now one of the most, we consider ourselves one of the most powerful 
organisms on planet earth or animals on planet earth and we would have a, we would have had our own brothers or cousins um, because we if i'm looking at ourselves we are homo sapiens um, but there would be other homos also uh, in the prehistoric period where you had they were massive in size they were giants when compared to homo sapien they had much brutal strength among themselves but how do you think humans homo sapiens were able to defeat uh, what um, the other homos were planning were capable of was simply because i mean uh, i remember the, uh, the writings by on sapiens that book sapiens where uh, noah rodi talks about uh, the power of gossip homo sapiens had this beautiful power of gossip where gossip in the sense that they could visualize something which was non existent and kind of ideate on that just the way we generally talk about the word gossip today in terms of people sitting down and gossip gossiping about what the neighbor did or what uh, uh, happens in society but if i really look at this power of of imagination of gossip of saying that of visualizing what would happen and verbally communicate it with other members of the tribe and say from here can we get on to this journey of looking at uh, solving a particular problem as to could be at that point of time if, what if a lion attacked us and how do we plan ourselves how do we strategize ourselves in you know working with that uh, lion so it is this beautiful idea that we've kind of had and because of this natural selection of gossip we became the survivor and the other bigger species including if i'm talking about forget homos even if i'm talking about the other animals who are much stronger we've been able to uh, take them out of our equations very fast uh, from literally uh, 80% of the land uh, being forest we are now brought it down to 18% of uh, forest across the globe in the last 50 years so we've kind of been occupying planet earth tremendously so uh, it's important that we also look at whatever is remaining of uh, earth's evolution and try and uh, decode that for our problem statement do you think uh, earth has not solved problems of economics uh, has earth not solved problems of structural innovation have earth not solved problems of um, you know cyclical processes many such things definitely earth would have solved issues of economics in the way we look at how the tree uh, puts its uh, uh, you know best chlorophyll into ink leaves and draws it out from the dying leaves and look at the economics of it there's nothing called waste in nature as i go further and i as i talk to you about uh, nature rules you will realize that there's so many things which nature has been doing so uh, yeah in this blip of 3 seconds what have we done we have created the greatest specific plastic soup uh, this is one example of what is kind of an implication we have done where we throw all our waste into the ocean that uh, today in the pacific ocean which is the biggest ocean on planet earth we don't have a single fish without a strand of plastic in it right uh and we are not too far off in trying to build our own uh, you know um, extinction if you go in the same pro process 
I will just take this further with you, right? Um, now, what do you mean by Great Pacific uh, Plus Soup or the garbage patch? Basically, uh, there are two swirls which you see on the left-hand top of uh, uh, the screen uh, from Japan to the United States, where the, both the countries have been throwing uh, a lot of their waste into the Pacific Ocean. And because of the gars, the undercurrents of, uh, of the Great Pacific uh, area, there are two Pacific gars, which is the West Pacific gar and the East Pacific gar. It's like a mixie. Okay, design thinking, as I uh, rightly said, you can look at the image on the right, which talks about the five steps, empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. And um, um, implement is the final thing, but these are the five important steps in the Stanford's model of uh, design thinking. And then we said, why should I look at nature? And we had a discussion of, uh, um, of the earth and uh, we have been on this planet earth for the last three seconds alone. Um, um, are you able to see the screen with the three seconds ago, uh, Madam Rachana? Okay, anyways, I'm not getting a response there, but let's move forward. Hopefully this is working. Okay, uh, so the Great Pacific Plastic Soup is what I was talking about, is where the two gars which you see on the left-hand top corner of the, uh, of the PPT, where um, between the United States and Japan, where you have the two gars, the East Pacific gar and the West Pacific gar, which kind of rotates like a mixie and starts uh, collecting all the plastics which are thrown into the patch. Because... We only have places to either we throw things into a landfill today or we throw things into the Pacific Ocean or into the ocean, right? So um, from 2014, uh, the United Nations confirmed that there were at least 270,000 tons, 270,000 tons of plastic waste which was thrown into our ocean. And unfortunately, uh, whatever piece of plastic was created from the time plastic was invented is still there on planet Earth. So we have not been able to understand how do we dispose it of. Even though plastic is both a boon and a bane, uh, this is some kind of a huge crisis which we are working on. And uh, there have been movements like uh, CNET, which is looking at uh, vacuuming uh, the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and removing uh, the, the waste, but it is a it is a case right now that not there's not a single fish in the Pacific Ocean without a strain of plastic in them. Uh, I will just give you uh, some video, some uh, rather some images from Chris Jordan, and uh, this is an image of 426,000 cell phones, and this was done somewhere in this uh, installation was done somewhere in 2012. So 4,26,000 cell phones was the number of cell phones which were retired only in, in the US, United States every day around 10 years ago. So this would have multiplied almost 10 to 15 times, which means close to around 42 lakh cell phones are being disposed of every day in the United States alone. So just imagine the kind of impact we're throwing back into the ocean if you don't really understand this, the system, right? Uh, this is a beautiful painting which uh, Chris Jordan worked on. 
this is something which he calls the portraits of uh, global mass culture which was done in 2011 this is of a, a of an artwork called venus this is close to 8 feet by 13 feet in dimension 8 feet by 13 feet in dimension and what does it have it has over 240000 plastic bags which was which is estimated to be thrown out in the us alone every 10 hours if i'm right right so kind of humongous this was we are talking about this in 2011 uh this is close ups of that painting so you can see each of these bags out there uh, the amount of the scale of bags which is packed together uh you, if you can see uh, my marker i'm just marking on to one plastic bag there and this is only part of the consumption uh, thing which we are doing now here i come to this question and, and ask you who is responsible for this kind of a waste who is responsible for the kind of uh, challenges we are facing today because of uh, uh, this thought i i would clearly put the blame on not on general human beings but on designers but on problem solvers because if we can redesign the process in such a way that we don't create waste because we don't see waste in nature so why should we create waste i mean why can't we learn from nature and not create waste right so or why can't we look at how do we economize stuff how do you relocate stuff so um i, I was in uh, professor yatin pandey's talk in the morning where he was talking about the different r's which we need to follow the recycle reuse refuse uh rediscover and many such things but i think the bottom or, the, or rather the most basic thing which we need to do to to literally rework on our whole um, uh, consumption system is to redesign we need to really understand how we can redesign so that we don't create uh, our own graves today we are out to create our own graves and where are we i mean this is something which uh, i really like a quote which means that designers actually have more potential to slow environmental degradation than economists politicians and environmentalists together their power is catalytic which means that as designers we have potential to literally work on redesigning systems redesigning economics redesigning um, politics and spheres redesigning every aspect of our life every problem we want to solve in such a way that we create uh, a life changing space for ourselves for for uh, for the human clan to move forward so let's look at how does nature do it these are certain rules of nature this is generally what we do as a 3 to 4 hour session but i'm trying to complete this in the next uh, 30 to 40 minutes so uh, one of some of the rules which we talk about is nature uses only the energy it needs and relies on freely available energy nature recycles all materials nature is resilient to disturbances which means that it can address disturbances and move forward and resolve itself uh i remember a huge forest fire catching over bandipur and as i drove past that place all i saw was burned tree trunks and two years later when i drove through the same place we we were back to green 
green landscape so nature can address disturbances nature tends to optimize rather than maximize nature i mean look at the tree i mean it's always an inspiration for me um from the way it addresses resources from the way it addresses simple things like collecting rainwater which falls in from the way it addresses um nitrogen fixers through its own leaves which are fallen down and how it generates food using chlorophyll it throws chlorophyll only to the top branches i mean i have two beautiful rain trees in front of my house and i know how they respect each other they are literally like brothers because i don't i don't know if you've heard of this thing called cloud uh, uh, no i forgot the name cloud uh, respect if i'm right where the branches move into each other but never overlap to, across two trees so they respect each other they start communicating um there's a beautiful book if you can read the hidden life of trees where uh, they talk about how trees are able to communicate using fungal matter below uh, uh, in the roots and uh, warn another tree of uh, an attack on another tree so it it's amazing the way nature tends to optimize rather than maximize there's so much of creative there's so much of inbuilt knowledge which we can borrow from nature nature provides mutual benefits nature runs on information nature uses chemistry and materials that are safe for living beings there's nothing in nature which which is non non biodegradable um it can address i mean i'm 100% sure that nature in due course of time will understand how to address the kind of waste we as human beings are living living on planet earth and it will know that it can convert plastic into a food source but the only thing is nature is so powerful enough that it can shoo us off to out of the equation and say enough of you guys you better leave this ecosystem and let me rework on it in, in a different format so nature uses chemistry of how it can deconstruct i mean today we already have certain bacteria which is which nature nature has produced which can start eating into bacteria right so whatever i mean uh, if i have to really look at the amount of fossil fuels we are using what do we mean by fossil fuels fuel which is taken out of non biodegradable material which was there uh, when uh, when uh, earth could not decompose Uh, cellulose what cellulose was available then when nature could not decompose we are able to use that as fossil fuel so definitely nature might look at plastics as another food for another source and start building using that so nature builds using abundant resources incorporating rare resources only sparingly nature is locally attuned and responsive nature uses shape to determine functionality so coming to uh, uh, looking at all of this uh, this is a book written by michael uh, i'm sorry i'm not able to pronounce their words but names michael brognart and william macdonald macdonald uh, they came out with a book called cradle to cradle which meant that uh, a cradle is a birthplace so which said that is there a possibility for us to understand nature as something which is working from cradle to cradle which means that when a child is born and uh, when i mean to say a child when a uh, when a process in nature is born 
and after its death it becomes food for another process because it becomes the birth of another process so this is what he talked about as cradle to cradle but how are we leading our lives uh, if i look at all the materials we have we've got i mean starting from organic material like banana peel newspapers cardboards which anywhere require around a, a month of time uh, to diapers which will require 600 years for uh, for it to decompose i mean uh, diapers for sure or even sanitary napkins have been uh, uh, in use say for the maximum of around let's say 100 years if i'm really talking about 100 years and we have already created so much of trash right we are creating so much of things which are just going into a sequence to uh, 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 you know things which is like glass bottles which can never be con- uh, broken down or even brick uh, burnt brick which is one of the most highly undecomposable materials which we can have so things like that we need to understand so the kind of process which we follow uh, is called the cradle to grave process which means that we are following a very linear process of extraction and disposal and in between we have processing design manufacturing distribution use repair and disposal and where do we dispose we dispose it onto our landfill we dispose it onto our oceans we don't have a process of disposable yet out of the uh, plastic waste we are creating a maximum for around 8 to 9% of those plastic waste are being recycled and remaining 92% of it is being sent to a landfill so as designers isn't it our responsibility to start looking at how do we look at all of these processes all of this design activities i mean as construction as architects we are one of the biggest consumption of material consumers of materials for the building industry and some of the most um, what do you say uh energy intensive processes what we follow uh be it in terms of cement or steel or any of the materials so i think somewhere we need to start moving towards just being creators of spaces creators of unique spaces to really looking at even working with chemists even working with naturalists even working with other genres in the in the coming days but i see that this is the answer i think very frankly um i don't see this as a pessimist approach but i see this as an optimist and say that let's shift from cradle to grave to cradle to uh, cradle and where have we moved i mean i'm still going into a little bit of really bringing in this awareness to all of you in terms of understanding uh, where we are uh, there's some kind of a concept called earth overshoot day and please do look at this uh, website called earth uh, overshoot day.org um this year 2020 uh, 2020 last year we finished earth overshoot day on 22nd of august which meant thus by august 22nd we have already consumed all the resources planet can replenish itself with the, for that particular year which means that after whatever we using after august 22nd till december 31st we start using it of the future generations um sorry for the ink kids that uh, this is the kind of process we have, we have left you into and uh, uh it's time that we bring the move move the date backward and there are various methodologies processes which we can follow to do so 
Um, so, uh, I mean, um, this is the definition given by that organization, Global Footprint Network, uh, which is a United uh, Nations-based organization, which talks about Earth Overshoot Day, which marks the date when humanity's demand for ecological resources and services in a given year exceeds what Earth can regenerate in that year. It's quite scary for us to really understand that according to their calculations by 2025, the Earth Worship Day is being marked for June 30th, which means that on 2025 or uh, a little later, we would be requiring two Earths to survive every year. We require two Earths to survive every year. And unfortunately, we don't have those two Earths. We only have one Earth to survive. So where does that lead us to? I mean, if I'm really looking at certain equations, which I see here, if every human being in, in, in the world lives like an American today, we need seven Earths. If every human being starts living like an Indian, we need around 1.8 Earths. So it is something which we really need to understand as to what is our lifestyle on the board. If everybody starts living like a Somalian, we might require around 0.8 Earths. But is that the kind of lifestyle? Is that the kind of depreciation uh, in lifestyle we need to bring in? Absolutely not. I think the answer lies in the way we look at design solutions. So this is something which I request all of you to look at. And uh, this is where I come into this idea of... Uh, um, where we looked at uh, from design thinking to design thinking through nature. Uh, design thinking, as I mentioned earlier, was all about empathizing, understanding a problem, defining the problem, ideating on the problem, prototyping that problem, and then creating a test, finding out from people, uh, and if required, go back to ideate or go back to redefining and things like that. But what we are doing in nature-inspired design thinking is going through a process of empathy, problem statement, and putting those questions across to nature and as asking nature as to, nature, uh, boss, how have you solved this problem? And nature would throw out a single-celled bacteria to a bear, which the same problem would be, would be addressed in different ways. I mean, I will show you some examples of what we have done in uh, in a few uh, project, uh, you know, pro projects in our workshops on how we went into that inquiry. And then when we go into that inquiry and find out from nature as to how have you done that was, nature creates a huge library of resources for us to document. So that's when we build a design matrix, which build a design matrix of uh, putting across the problem statement and then saying, how has nature done this? Uh, solutions, created solutions for all these five, six problem statements which I've created for based on my initial problem, problem which I want to solve. And then you'll find a plethora of problems and solutions from, uh, from nature. And you get that plethora of stuff together and then start ideating with those uh, in-house. And then you might find the solutions through geometry. You might find the solutions from chemistry. You might find the solution from philosophy of nature. You might find the solution from... Um, you know, mechanics of nature. And and with that, you can create some amazing design solutions. And then you, I preferably go into prototyping, testing, and going back. This I see as something which can be used in any um, field of uh, problem solving, be it a brainstorming session on how do I um, maximize or rather minimize expenditure in an organization 
to how do I create a large pan structure or how do I create that uh, whole beautiful uh, um, visual space which uh, uh, we are in right now, the, the campus, you know, where you look at all of those as simple leaf-like structures coming out and we are inside that on visual, virtual uh, space. So how do you ideate and create that kind of geometry? This is something which we can work on, right? So um, I think uh, um, one of the most important activities of design thinking is about defining the problem. And I, I, mean, I borrow this uh, very famously shared quote of Albert Einstein, where he says that if I'm given an hour to save the planet, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem and one minute to solve it. And it all goes down to defining how you define that problem. So it goes down to empathizing, understanding the people, understanding the challenges, understanding the requirements, and redefining the problem and redefining the problem further to ask Nietzsche the right kind of questions. So uh, um, I remember, I mean, I use this example quite quite regularly, where we were doing a workshop and we had a chemical engineer in our uh, in our workshop, who who said that the soap which we use for bathing has a lot of acidic value uh, acidic value to it. The pH value of a soap is greater than seven, and that in turn creates various challenges for human beings like dryness, like uh, the skin skin elements and things like that. So he said it's it's important that we move from a soap to a shower gel, which is more alkaline in nature. Now, here is a very interesting uh, problem where he said that I would want to make people use a shower gel, but uh, this idea that a shower gel will get consumed much faster than a soap is what stops people from buying. So how can I convert a shower gel into a soap? And he said that when we are doing it, when I have to harden any sour gel, I need to bring in the acidic value to it. So when we started questioning nature, and one of the questions of nature was about how does nature hold liquid and transfers liquid only unidirectional? And then he found answers in certain tadpoles which allowed um, you know, water movement only unidirectional into that space, like the gills of a tadpole, uh, right? Which allowed it to move in a unidirectional thing and went into nano studies of that and then said, here is a soap uh, cover, a cover for holding the shower gel, but which only allows the shower gel to move out when rubbed on a skin and not otherwise. So just imagine how he could recreate a whole thing. I'm not saying this is still a cradle to cradle, but it's a way ahead in terms of saying that here's a beautiful inspiration I can use from nature. I will look at some more inspirations as I go further. Um, another great example which we can look at is the bullet train, which looked at the kingfisher's beak. Because if you look at the earlier bullet trains, the earlier bullet trains were more, had a much more flatter snub uh, of a facade. Uh, it didn't have this elongated beak-like uh, frontage. It had a snub. So whenever it went into a tunnel, it was hitting itself into a wall of air. And that created a huge sonic boom for the bullet train to walk in. And that also, when you're hitting against a high density air, the speed definitely drops down. And uh, when they were redesigning, when they're re-looking at all this, the chairman of uh, the bullet train company was also a bird watcher. 
and, and they went into looking at the beaks of different birds and they looked at the kingfisher's beak wherein it smoothly uh, guides itself into the water without creating any ripples. The second image, without creating any ripples, picks the fish and comes out. So it does not disturb any fish. Um, it does not allow the fish to have any kind of a reflex action. And that's why they are known to be such brilliant fishers, the, king, the kingfisher bird. And they use that beak and put it onto a bullet train and increase speeds by almost 18%. And today, um, I mean, I was in Japan a few years ago and I was shocked to find out the cumulative delay. The total delay of all bullet trains from across Japan for a year is six seconds. Six seconds is the cumulative delay of all bullet trains from across Japan. Beautiful, right? Beautiful. And some of them, I mean, some more examples like the chocolate technologies where Michael Phillip wore it for the first time, where people looked at uh, the shark skin and found out the kind of nano cells which are shaped like the second, second image which you see there and built fabric uh, like using that concept which is used by swimmers. And uh, if you look at swimmers, they go and um, you know, before getting into a dive, before getting into a race, they, they start pouring water onto their swimsuit because it then moves and creates that flow drag with before they even get into uh, the water. And the moment they dive into the water, they're, they're literally moving smooth. They, they would have got a film of water on their body already. So things like that, right? Or like the butterfly or the beetle, which kind of has, uses the structured lighting, which kind of talks about reflecting light in a different format so that uh, you see it reflects all the colors it does, it, that it can't observe. Uh, no, absorb. So in, in one set, if, if, uh, um, if I look at an apple and I say that the apple is looking at the structured light, which basically means that apple is actually of all colors other than right or other than red, because it's it can only throw red out. And um, um, they did look at a little bit of studies on uh, the morph, uh, which is that I think it's called the Morpholia blue butterfly, which looks at structured light or fragmenting light and throwing out brilliant uh, incandescent blue and then are now looking at creating uh, paints out of that, which kind of, uh, which can become, which can make a, a building's color very radiant in terms of the kind of quality of sunlight which falls on it and the, the building can change its own colors, right? That's the kind of innovations we need to get into. Some examples of, uh, you know, conceptual buildings like the bird's nest, uh, which was done in, uh, I think uh, New Zealand, and this was a project which we, from my office, looked at how a shell works and how um, an egg hatches, and tried to look at uh, recreating that as a very thin, two, uh, you know, uh, um, one and a half inch thick uh, shell structure which could span close to around forty feet, and the way we could look at the fragmentation of an egg and create a kindergarten out of it. So these are some images of the, that kindergarten, which we designed in Bangalore. And uh, the left-hand side, which I'm not showing more photographs of, is basically a column which inclines, where we looked at how a tree works and transverse load. So we have this 
inclined column inward at the bottom and outward at the first floor and had the tie beams on the inside of the first floor and outside on the ground floor thereby looking at the way the tree transfers loads on a fork and uh, this in turn uh, helped us reduce close to around 10% of steel consumption in this building so uh, simple things like that so more such questions in in terms of how how we can look at nature what can a cluster of dandelions teach us about space exploration how can owls help us build quieter wind turbines owls are one of the most quietest birds uh, we find in in the bird kingdom um the decibels out there is literally close to zero decibels when they fly so how can we learn from that and design wind turbines these are all companies which have already started working on such issues what can ants teach us about optimization right uh, that's what we call a swarm intelligence today what we are talking about uh, driverless cars is based on the swarm technology um and i'll give you an example of uh, the southwest airlines in the united states which looked at this idea of swarm technologies and created a, a network where a flight can land into an airport and move out of the airport at its fastest because the economy of a flight is uh, is when it's flying not when it's on the tarmac right so they have created a whole system based on swarm technology on how air aeroplanes can move to the right uh, loading bay and move out at the fastest pace similarly how they can look at people congregated inside the airport to move in and enter the aircraft in the most uh, fast way they've looked at ants and get got inspirations from them how can butterflies help us design mobile phones with longer butterfly bat battery life sorry uh this is one uh, case study which we did this is one of the projects which we did with one of the students um who wanted to uh, design a multi use self cleansing environmentally friendly attire and they started looking at this is, is part of this process which we follow in terms of saying how can i look at how can i define the problem how can i deconstruct that problem statement and then how can i empathize on the problem uh we follow a certain process called the 5w's the 5w2h's which is about five ways which is about how do you go into the uh, root cause of a problem statement or how do you uh, go wide in terms of saying who is facing the problem what is the problem about when is the problem being faced where is it being faced why is it being faced how is this being faced how many people are facing this problem so you kind of build this whole multi level way of understanding whys and whos and hows and also understand the empathy mapping of saying how does the user feel say think uh, and does when he faces a problem and what are the pains and gains we create this whole matrix and then we kind of create a how can we how can we um, problem statement and then break that down into various questions of asking uh, nature i will give you some i'll show you more examples of this this is one presentation done by one of the participants uh, in our workshop on nature inspired design thinking um i will just slide through the process the problem which they wanted to solve was how can we help children carry heavy books uh, this is a simple problem which they talked about and then when they talked about deconstructing the problem they said what is the specific problem what is the result of the problem the situation 
explain why the problem is a problem and things like that. So you talked about back pain and stress and so many other things, and then went into understanding why the multi levels of why, multi levels of why until they find out what was the main why. Okay, the main why of this problem was why does the weight become excessive on the spine, and if that's something which we can solve, and they went into this whole query of. Why is the box back falling? Where can the load be distributed to? When does it become a major problem? How many different types of things do we have to carry? Many such questions so that you empathize and really look at the problem much cleaner, much detailed. And this is something which we can use for anything. This is something which we can use for, as I told you, uh, for understanding structural systems. How can I design a span for uh, 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 trans, uh, you know, multi-node transportation system or for a stadium or how do I do the detail of a joinery of a wood of a window to that level we can go. I mean, it's it's there for every aspect. So you do an empathy mapping with the user in mind. We do something called a persona mapping. We do uh, a lot of such things. So um, then we start changing the whole uh, query process in terms of saying how the, how can we and we change the whole process in asking nature as to how does nature carry and transport heavy loads. So you look at inspirations like the elephant's uh, foot, you look at pangolins, you look at tortoises, you look at the sloth bear, and then you kind of ideate. I mean, this is something which happened over a three-day activity where they looked at various aspects of the uh, of these four organisms. I would say if you build a matrix of around 100 organisms, you will be able to then use that matrix to brainstorm on various ideas. And this is an idea which they came across and said that, let's look at the sloth, let's look at the elephant uh, leg, let's look at um, you know various things and say that this is the kind of bag I can design for a child so that he does not feel uh, carrying the bag is heavy. So this is, this is a simple activity which we did in a three-day process. Right, so uh, I think it's important that we start looking at nature as an inspiration, and uh, this is something which I'm working on right now. In fact, uh, today at um, um, at eight o'clock, uh, in fact, I'm launching this for people who've already been a part of my earlier workshops. We are creating something called a natural chain maker stripe, and this whole idea is to create over a million uh, chain makers. Uh, who would look at the way it is, uh, we can solve problems using nature and we take up live design problems and work on these live design problems. So we are looking at creating a tribe of design thinkers, critical thinkers, and um, this would, uh, on becoming a part of our natural change makers tribe, we create a two-month design sprint where we take up a real-life problem and try and work on that. Uh, and we have this campfire uh, what I call as a campfire is the two-month campfire where we come out with design solutions. It could be design solutions to designing a new product. It could be designing design solutions to design a, an architectural language. It could be design solutions to design a product, uh, to design a management system, to design a financial system, to could be take up United Nations Sustainable Goals. Could be any of this and address this as a group of people brainstorm it. So get a designer on board, get a naturalist, get on board, get a biologist on board, get a chemist on board, work together and kind of coming out on this uh, problem solving. So that's something which we do. And I'm coming to the end. I think uh, I hope I haven't overshot uh, thing. Uh, do request you to 
um, use your phones and scan this uh, QR codes. You can find us on Instagram, on Facebook, where uh, I, you know, I could announce when we are doing the next workshop, where if you are interested, if this whole school of thought interests you and you would like to join us for this whole school of thought, we are uh, creating a program online where we are uh, putting up a lot of learnings on the various tools we can use for design thinking and different processes which we follow for empathy mapping, different processes we follow for defining a problem, different processes we follow for rebuilding the design matrix with nature, the kind of queries we get into. So this is a, a group where we'll be kind of throwing in a lot of uh, uh, inputs for people to work in. I mean, the intent is that can we make the world a much better, much safer place for us to survive for a longer time? Let's not bring about our extinction faster uh, because I, at this pace, we are bringing in an extinction much faster. And uh, today uh, we do understand how nature is quite such a powerful um, you know, threat to human survival with the COVID situation. So yeah, these are uh, my links for you to Log in, uh, HCD Instagram and HCD Facebook. You can log in into that, become part of our community and explore design thinking. And uh, Humpy Center of Design is one of the ideas of, uh, or the vision of Humpy Center of Design is also to bring design to the grassroots of every human being. So it is not about creating only a group of designers ideating on things, but we would like to bring design across to every human being. and. One part of that activity is what we do in terms of India Design 101, where for 101 days, we kind of share stories about India. We share stories about different artists from across the globe. We gave a small design activity, which anyone can do in 10 minutes. And this is an email-based activity. And if anyone's interested to join us for that activity, the India Design 101, on the right-hand side, you can see the QR code and you can log into that. So um, thank you for this opportunity, and I shall be, um, uh, you know, um, I'm open to any queries or questions. Do I stop sharing, Rachna? Yes. Uh, any queries? Any thoughts? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It was a great, great. Uh, uh, the workshop was a really great insight on nature-inspired design thinking, and uh, I guess a lot of you know uh, audience members have gained a, a very great refined perspective on how you know this can taken can be taken ahead. So. Uh, I guess they are, you know, more than willing to join your workshop and there will be, you know, a uh, lot more queries uh, generated there. As of now, we do not have queries from the audience section. But it was a great, great workshop nonetheless. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Yes, thank you Pleasure so much. Sir. Yeah, we did. I mean, um, this is something which we do as almost a six to seven hours of a workshop or, um, you know, now we're kind of curating it to close to recorded uh, videos of 100 hours. So um, in a one hour session, it's, I can only give a glimpse of what is uh, in the world of nature, right? Yes, that is more than enough. Yeah. 
yes and the, it's it's you know it ignited a few a great uh, you know minds uh, regarding nature inspired design thinking awesome. so it was a great workshop thank you sir thank, thank you for joining us sir. yeah thank you thank you yes.